Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, Cardio Nerds family. This episode continues the Cardio Nerds Lipid Series, which is a comprehensive, all-you-need-to-know series led by co-chairs Dr. Rick Ferraro, Director of Journal Club for the Cardio Nerds Academy and Cardiology Fellow at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, and Dr. Tommy Das, Program Director of the Cardio Nerds Academy and Cardiology Fellow at the Cleveland Clinic, and is produced in collaboration for the American Society for Preventive Cardiology. In this episode, Rick and Tommy are joined by Academy Fellow Dr. Julie Power, Chief Fellow at the University of Minnesota, to learn all about the link between LDLC and cardiovascular events, as well as disparities in care with Dr. Keith Ferdinand. If you're enjoying the episode or show, please consider supporting the show by rating and reviewing us on your favorite podcast platform and think of somebody who would enjoy the podcast and spread the Cardio Nerds word. If they are new to podcasting, just hop on their phone and show them how to subscribe. Finally, this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. Cardio Nerds is an independent, fellow-founded platform with the mission to democratize cardiovascular education. To continue creating free and unbiased quality content, we are proud to collaborate with all stakeholders, including trainees, experts, fellowship programs, professional societies, industry, and patient advocacy groups. This episode is brought to you in collaboration with the American Society of Preventive Cardiology and made possible by unrestricted support from Amgen. Relevant disclosures can be found in the episode show notes and the curriculum and content is planned, produced, and reviewed solely by Cardio Nerds without external bias. It's Rick Ferraro back with Tommy Das. Thank you for joining us as we continue our Cardio Nerds prevention series on LDL cholesterol in collaboration with the American Society for Preventative Cardiology. In part one of this series, we reviewed the pathophysiology of LDL with Dr. Peter Toth. In this second part, we'll be reviewing the link between LDL and cardiovascular events, while also highlighting disparities in lipid management and ASCVD outcomes. This episode was designed by Dr. Julie Power. Julie is a chief cardiology fellow, as well as a future interventional cardiology fellow at the University of Minnesota. We are proud to have her as a Cardio Nerds Academy fellow in House Jones, named after the legendary Dr. Edith Irby Jones. Welcome, Julie. Thanks, Tommy. What a delight it is to be here discussing a topic near and dear to general practitioners, cardiac preventionists, and interventionalists alike. It's my absolute pleasure to introduce an expert in this area, Dr. Keith C. Ferdinand, Professor of Medicine and Gerald S. Berenson Chair in Preventative Cardiology at Tulane University School of Medicine. Dr. Ferdinand received his BA in Biology from the University of New Orleans, He earned his medical degree from Howard University College of Medicine in Washington, D.C. He completed his internal medicine residency and cardiology fellowship at LSU Medical Center and a cardiology fellowship at Howard University Hospital with additional certification in nuclear and clinical hypertension. Dr. Ferdinand is involved in many national and public health organizations, including the Association of Black Cardiologists, of which he was the former chair and chief science officer the American Society of Hypertension, and the Healthy Heart Community Prevention Program, a cardiovascular risk program targeting African-American patients and high-risk populations. He also is the previous chair of the National Forum for Heart Disease and Stroke Prevention. He is currently on the board of the American Society of Preventative Cardiology 
and he currently focuses largely on cardiac risk factor evaluation and control, especially hypertension and hyperlipidemia, and in communities of racial and ethnic minorities. His passion for patient care is highlighted in his commitment to nonprofit work and community service. He has over 250 manuscripts published and has conducted numerous trials in the fields of cardiology, cardiovascular disease, lipids, and cardiometabolic risk, particularly focusing on the needs of racial and ethnic minorities. Dr. Ferdinand's participation in research has been published in peer-reviewed journals, including the New England Journal of Medicine, the Journal of the American College of Cardiology, the Journal of Clinical Hypertension, the American Journal of Cardiovascular Drugs, Clinical Lipidology, and the Journal Cardiorenal Medicine and Hypertension. Welcome, Dr. Ferdinand. Welcome. Thank you. Dr. Ferdinand, thank you so much for taking the time to be here with us tonight and to share your knowledge. We'd like to start with a question we ask everyone here. And that's, how did you become interested in cardiovascular prevention? Well, my pathway to being a cardiologist is a little bit more direct than you would think. As a child, I didn't have any great love of medicine per se. I didn't have a toy stethoscope and desire to be a cardiologist. I grew up in the Lower Ninth Ward. It's the neighborhood at the back part of New Orleans that you could come for a convention 20 times and never visit. And this is the same area that was utterly destroyed by Hurricane Katrina. When I grew up as a kid, the teachers and my family and the neighborhood put a lot into me. And when I finally got into formal education, went away to college and decided I wanted to go to med school, I did some basic research and found that what was killing the people in my community more than anything else was cardiovascular disease, heart disease, strokes, heart failure, chronic kidney disease. So I wanted to have a tool by which I could make a difference. Now, in 2021, that sounds a little far-fetched as a reason to be a cardiologist, but that is exactly what I decided to do. Thank you for sharing that with us, Dr. Ferdinand. It's wonderful to hear what a genuine drive and passion you have for your patients and your community. Let's get started in our preventative cardiology clinic with the first case of the day. Our first patients are Eddie and Izzo Timaib. 20-year-old male twin brothers who are seeing us in clinic for newly diagnosed familial hypercholesterolemia on genetic testing. Izzo tested negative for the gene mutation. However, Eddie was positive. Eddie's cholesterol was 200 on his latest labs and Izzo's was 120. Their mother also has heterozygous familial hypercholesterolemia and had an MI in her 40s. They want to know more about familial hypercholesterolemia and how lowering her LDLC will factor into their future risk of cardiovascular events. What would you tell them? Well, I would tell them that when you go to most practicing clinicians, they may not even be aware of the condition. And it's mainly driven by genetics. One of the most common is a defect in the LDL receptor and that it's not your fault. But we now have medications that may actually help you live longer and live better. Your brother is clearly one who did not have the same degree of risk as you did. We're not really sure that we can reverse to the extent that you have this genetic defect, your risk to equal that of your brother. But with intensive LDL reduction, it's clear that we can reduce the chances of having a heart attack, stroke, and perhaps dying from cardiovascular disease prematurely. What a great approach. And I think something that really strikes with me is just how you started that conversation. It's just, it's not your fault. And I think there's so much that goes into people who have these diseases and their conception of the disease. And having such a patient-centered approach is, to start with is so important. I want to piggyback off that a little bit and ask a 
slightly different question, but an important question, a large question, and something that you have definite expertise in. We'd like to ask you to outline some of the disparities in ASCVD care within our underserved communities, and what are the primary barriers to improving health equity in that regard? A big question, but an important question. Yeah, it is a very important question. Let me first build it on the case and then widen the scope. When you look at FH, at one time we considered a rare condition. Many primary care providers and even cardiologists still are unaware of how common it is. It may be as common as one out of 250 persons for heterozygous. And when you look at the LDLs that they have, the surrogate that's in the guidelines would be an LDL of 190 and above, even if you don't do genetic testing. But here's what's most disconcerting. In the Cascade Registry from the FH Foundation, when they look at the attainment of an LDL of 100 or less, Black patients, women, patients of Asian descent in their registry had less intensive LDL reduction. And what even became more distressing was that even the application of the baseline of high-intensity statins was notably less seen in the Black cohort within the Cascade Registry. So that suggests that a condition which is not simply built on lifestyle, but built to a large extent on a person's genetics, can be impacted by how that patient is treated by the healthcare system. So your question is, what drives these disparities? It somewhat presumes that everyone who's listening believes that these disparities are real. And unfortunately, many don't. They think it's social science. But if you look at cardiovascular mortality, mortality related to heart failure, mortality related to hypertension, premature heart attacks, chronic kidney disease and end-stage renal disease, the difference in non-Hispanic Blacks or African-Americans compared to the majority population are immense. It's not a little bit. It's 1.5 to 2 times for certain conditions. For end-stage renal disease, it's 2.8 to 3 times more people on dialysis who self-identify as Black, as would be predicted by the population percentage. So what that suggests is that whatever is driving this is not clearly genetic because there's no gene or one set of genes that could explain all these disparate conditions and the real hard mortality differences that you see across populations. Here's what I think. I think it's first driven by socioeconomic status. People who are poor live poorly in the United States. And again, this is not social science. We're talking about survival, mortality, life expectancy, the bottom 1% versus the top 1%. And these social determinants of health the surrogates of which are lower educational attainment, unemployment or underemployment, living in an environment where you have high levels of violence, so-called food deserts where fresh fruits, vegetables, the Mediterranean diet, the DASH diet are just a dream. In that environment, it is hard to expect that in a 15-20 minute outpatient clinic visit that we can change the arc of that person's life without doing more. We as physicians, though, tend not to do more. And in fact, One of the things that I find somewhat distressing, especially about some of my fellow cardiologists in training, is that probably because of the excitement of being a new cardiologist, they become more enamored with placing devices or doing a procedure or advanced imaging than treating the whole person and addressing those social determinants to the best that they can. And the reason why it's understandable, because it certainly is exciting, I actually did interventional cardiology at one time. I've done pacemaker skin to skin. But the reason why it's somewhat misdirected is because if you look at the public health burden that explains these disparities, it's not driven by a lack of coronary interventions or not having enough pacemakers or not doing enough nuclear studies. 
it's driven by those various social determinants that I've already described that I think underlie much of the disparities. And we don't address that. We're not going to be able to intervene and device our way out of these disparities. Dr. Ferdinand, I think this is so important. And as we've seen as trainees, having a primary care clinic or a subspecialty clinic in a food desert makes our normal advice for patients so difficult to make a reality. What can we do to support these patients at an individual level? Well, we as physicians and other clinicians can only do so much. But I think to the extent that we can, we should refer them for at least places where they can seek education and help. You should know community services and what's available. You should be aware of the diabetes education classes, which are usually free in most institutions. You should have the direct line to social services to help people who may be underinsured or not insured. And you should have a relationship with a pharmacy who's willing to do more than just fill prescriptions, but actually help patients get through the complex maze of prior authorization. For instance, you take the PCSK9 inhibitors. I talked about FH in the FH Cascade study, over 3,000 persons and the disparities that were seen within the registry. If you take PCSK9 inhibitors, which have been shown when applied to high-intensity statins are the best tolerated doses of statins, there are disparities there in the application of PCSK9 inhibitors with Black patients using less PCSK9 inhibitors. But it's not just expensive, advanced pharmacotherapy, even statins themselves. When you go to the REGARD study, the REGARD study is a large cohort, Black and white, mainly in the southeastern part of the United States, so over 30,000 people. The Black patients have less use of high-intensity statins, despite having a higher risk. And it's not just in the South. If you go into the North, at least one large academic center, when doing the electronic analysis of the records, the Black patients had less applications of high-intensity statins. So clearly, expensive, newer therapies with less insurance or underinsurance, the complexities of prior authorization, that becomes a real barrier. But then when you get to generic statins, they're still not applied equally. Why is that? I think to some extent, we as clinicians, in a very subtle, unintended manner, come to accept that certain patients can't understand, won't adhere, can't afford, won't change their lifestyle, won't seek appropriate behavioral changes. So we we make kind of a superficial approach to risk reduction and don't sit down eye to level, literacy appropriate, culturally appropriate, language appropriate, and educate and empower patients to make a difference. You know, it's not just cardiovascular disease. I I still do clinic and I, I still intensively treat patients mainly for risk reduction. But I had a patient just last week And what I do when I see a patient is I look through the electronic record and I scour the record for every test, every blood test, every x-ray, every image they've had done within the last few months to see more about what's going on with the whole patient. And this guy had had a bronchoscopy approximately a month to five weeks ago. And in the biopsy report, it said adenocarcinoma of the lung. And when I told this 60 plus year old regular guy from New Orleans, African-American. I said, man, I didn't I didn't do your test when they looked in your lung, but did anyone tell you you had lung cancer? He looked stunned. So what I think has happened? Perhaps he was sedated. Perhaps the doctor even told him you have adenocarcinoma. But if you have an eighth grade education, not intelligence, but formal education, and the doctor doesn't sit down and draw a picture and explain to you what that means, what the heck does you have adenocarcinoma mean as you mumble it as you walk out the room? follow up in three weeks. 
or I'm going to send you to heme oncologist. The guy does not know what you just said. So I think along with all the barriers that I talked about, the structural inequalities, the social determinants, we as physicians have to do a better job of educating our patients so we can empower them to be partners in their care. And I, I'm not in the room with most of my colleagues, but I'm starting to think that we're not doing that, that we're not sitting down, touching these patients, drawing pictures, giving them handouts with people who look like them, big font, colorful pictures, and explaining to them what their disease process is. We're just doing stuff. We're doing bronchoscopies and getting biopsies and doing myocardial perfusion studies and talking about defects in the territory of the left anterior descending of moderate severity for the intervention needed. And the patient doesn't know what you just said. Dr. Ferdinand, that was incredibly powerful and just a tremendous amount to dissect there. I, I'm looking forward to going back and listening to this again because there was just so much that you said there that I think resonates with, with physicians today. And, and certainly, you know, practicing in Baltimore right now, there's, there's a huge amount that resonates for, for my own practice and, and that of Tommy as well, one of my co-residents. You know, I did want to touch on a topic that you had mentioned a little bit. You had mentioned PCSK9 inhibitors. You had also mentioned prior authorization. You know, could you talk a little bit more about the role that these play for our patients with or without FH and, and what we can do to increase access? Well, I think LDL is a powerful predictive cardiovascular risk, not necessarily only in clinical outcomes trials or interventional trials with pharmacotherapy, but just looking at large cohort studies, Jackson Heart Study, Framingham, Regards. But even prior to that, the endowment I have is named after Gerald S. Berenson. And Dr. Berenson was a giant in cardiology. Those of you who are not from the South, maybe you don't know him, but you should. He had the Bugaloosa Heart Study. It was a biracial, it is a biracial town in Louisiana on the other side of this large lake that sits north of the city of New Orleans called Lake Punchatrain. Bugaloosa is a country town. And Dr. Berenson had the attention of all the teachers and the politicians in that town. And he would measure the lipids, fat content, blood pressure, do x-rays, echocardiograms, and all the little kids in Bugaloosa, both black and white, and was able to determine that early on in the preteen and early adolescence, the risk factors started to become apparent and some of the disparities started to become apparent. Because he was so politically connected, if the coroner had an autopsy because of trauma or violence and it was a child, Dr. Barron's had, had access to those records also. And he was able to show that atherosclerosis itself starts in the preteen years. So it's important to recognize that LDL increases with age. We talked about FH, which is a marker for high LDL, even in very young, but it, without FH, just conventional LDL impacted by diet and lifestyle, increases with age and starts to manifest itself in the preteen and early adolescence age groups. So what we're going to have to do going forward, and we can talk more about drugs and how the drugs modify LDL in adults, but what we're going to have to do going forward is to also address primordial prevention in trying to treat these diseases before they become manifest in adulthood and middle age in terms of lesions where we can scrape, burn, and squeeze and put scaffolding inside to keep the blood flowing. Dr. Ferdinand, thank you. That was an amazing review. Let's bullet point the big takeaways of your discussion. First, LDL is a central determinant for the initiation and progression of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. 
Second, the lower the LDL cholesterol level attained by agents that primarily target LDL receptors, the greater the clinical benefit accrued. Third, we should lower the LDL-C in individuals at high cardiovascular risk earlier rather than later, especially in those with familial hypercholesterolemia. Finally, we must recognize and work together to address cardiovascular health disparities from both the individual and population levels. That's fair. I'm going to put a little bullet on the intervention to lower LDL. Patients with high cardiovascular risk obviously have the best benefit. The first major statin trial was the 4S trial, Scandinavian Simvastatin survival trial. They called it 4S because there were 4,444 persons. And because it was in Scandinavia, Denmark, Finland, Sweden, we could assume that it was not a very diverse population. But they were able to show in that particular study a decrease in major cardiovascular events, including heart attacks and cardiovascular death using simvastatin, which, as you know, is not as potent as statins, which were later developed, atorvastatin and rosuvastatin. But even bringing it down to patients who have average LDL, the Jupiter trial, Paul Ricker study, with an average LDL of 113 plus an elevated HSCRP, which is an inflammatory marker, rosuvastatin, 20 milligrams, was shown to decrease cardiovascular events and cardiovascular death. There was also a strong trend marginal statistical significance for total mortality, but in a population in which the LDL would be perceived as not being high. So yes, high cardiovascular risk, high intensity statins, beneficial, addition of other agents, azetamide, PCSK9 inhibitors, beneficial, but you could also make the case that the linear and direct relationship between LDL and cardiovascular events goes down even to lower levels than those that are often seen in our guidelines. And that is probably because when you have populations who have already had 10, 20, 30 years of a mid-year of high cholesterol and increased risk, it becomes more difficult to show benefit in patients who don't have very high risk with LDLs in the same area with the case that we had that had FH. But from an observational point of view, We know looking at the PCSK9 studies that that direct linear reduction in risk, if the LDL reduction is intense, maintains down to an LDL of at least 25 milligrams per deciliter, maybe even lower. But there's no reason to think it just has to be the very high risk levels of LDL in which we're going to have benefit. What an incredible discussion. And again, Dr. Ferdinand, can't thank you enough for your time and and you're teaching here. You know, we do have another case today, and I was hoping, Julie, could you present our next patient? I'd be happy to, Rick. Our next patient is Zelantoma. She is a 65-year-old woman who has been smoking one pack per day for the past 40 years. She also has hypertension, for which she takes amlodipine and hydrochlorothiazide, and hyperlipidemia, for which she takes a statin. Her last LDL was 160, and she is here today because she wants to try to quit smoking and wants to know if this will help her cholesterol levels. Dr. Ferdinand, what is the importance of high or low LDL-C as relates to other risk factors, such as hypertension? Is it multiplicative? Simple answer is yes. We talked into great detail about the impact of LDL, and certainly her LDL is very high. I have not done a risk calculation, but I would think it would be high risk and she would need a high-intensity statin. But even more importantly, 
LDL cholesterol is not a risk factor that's an island. It sits in the milieu of other risk factors. And hypertension is perhaps the most potent and widely prevalent cardiovascular risk factors of all. Now, the definition of hypertension is somewhat arbitrary. If you look at the older guidelines, 140 over 90, with the 2017 ACCAHA multi-society blood pressure guidelines, it's now 130 over 80 defined as hypertension. And that is because similar to what I said about the direct linear relationship between LDL and risk, there is a profound direct linear relationship between blood pressure and risk, especially systolic blood pressure in middle age and older persons, which she fits the bill. And how low should a person go has been somewhat confirmed by more recent studies, such as the SPRINT study, and the final report from SPRINT was just published in June of 2021. The original report was in 2015. And what it suggests is that rather than keeping the old definition of hypertension with a goal of less than 140 over 90, attempting to reach a goal of 120 gives benefit. Now, SPRINT really didn't get the systolic blood pressure down to 120. The median blood pressure in the intensive group was 123, but it did show that intensive blood pressure reduction decreased a wide range of cardiovascular conditions, including heart attack, strokes, heart failure, and cardiovascular mortality and total mortality. So I, I gave you a yes when you asked, were these various risk factors multiplicative? It's a strong yes. And in fact, you can make the case that while LDL is extremely important and we should modify her LDL, if we don't control her blood pressure, we're doing her disservice. Now, we all know there's nothing good about smoking. I tend not to try to get patients to go cold turkey on smoking. There are various smoking techniques, including limiting the amounts of cigarettes that a person will have available, using various nicotine replacements, and some of the antidepressants, bupropion, also assist. But you know what's the most powerful predictor of a person stop smoking? Having a strong physician-patient relationship and that patient understanding the deleterious effects of smoking and stopping because that physician made that recommendation. That has been shown to be the strongest means of getting a person to stop. In this particular case, then, I would manage your blood pressure. I wouldn't do it just based on office blood pressure, that magic 15-minute visit every two to four months that we do often with poor technique, with the patient anxious sitting on the table, the arm dangling. But I would hopefully try to get her a validated home blood pressure device. Many of them now have Bluetooth and there are certain apps which are free where I can actually see her blood pressure on a regular basis and track it and help her control her blood pressure, not necessarily down to normal level. But clearly, I agree with the new goal of less than 130 over 80, I think 140 over 90 would be inadequate to control. And I would work with her in terms of the smoking cessation and intensively drive her LDL down based on the risk calculation. I didn't do a quick and dirty, but I would suggest that especially if we do additional imaging, coronary calcium score, we would probably show that she already has atherosclerosis. So I would think it would be reasonable to drive her LDL clearly down less than 100, but I would think less than 70. Dr. Ferdinand, again, incredibly helpful. And, you know, you mentioned a little bit there ambulatory blood pressure monitoring. And I know you had spoken recently as well on the recent United States Preventative Task Force recommendation to both check an in-office blood pressure and to confirm this blood pressure with ambulatory monitoring prior to treatment. 
and how this might serve as a barrier in underserved communities specifically. Could you speak on that a little bit here and any recommendations for clinicians? Yeah, my, my editorial was kind of a mixed bag. It almost sounds like I was against the recommendation that the diagnosis of blood pressure should be done out of the office for confirmation and that patients should monitor their blood pressures in an out-of-office setting. I actually agree with that, and I said that related to the case that we just discussed. But the reason it was a mixed bag, because I felt that if we we're going to make these type of recommendations, we may need to make sure that patients have access. The Bluetooth devices that I talked about from the validatebp.org site, V-A-L-I-D-A-T-E-B-P, all one word, .org, is a site where the AMA has actually studied in controlled situation the various devices and show which ones give accurate measurement. Some of them are very expensive. Some of them are moderately expensive, but all of them are probably in the range of 40 to $60 or more. And the reason I said I'm not sure that that's going to be a solution is because many people are living on an edge. They're borrowing from one credit card to another to make ends meet. And they may not have that disposable income, which to some of us doesn't sound like a lot. Here's what I think the answer is. Out-of-office blood pressure, including self-monitored blood pressure, ambulatory blood pressure monitoring, clearly gives you a better assessment of blood pressure load than the conventional office blood pressure. But just to make it as a recommendation and not to ensure that especially the governmental insurance, Medicaid, Medicare, many of the private insurance of the person is working class, if they don't assist and pay for those devices, then you're going to have a new recommendation with the unintended consequence of widening disparities. How does that work? You have a device, you have a tool, you have an intervention, you have a drug, and the people who can get it are the people with means, the people who can't get it are the people who have less means. So the benefit now is accrued to those who have a higher socioeconomic status to the detriment of those who don't. So now the new device, the new intervention, the new medication, you pick your two, PCSK9, TAVR, out-of-office blood pressure with a validated device, widens disparities. And at some point, we're going to have to stop this madness of developing new pharmacotherapeutic devices and interventions and then not making sure that they're widely available. And if we don't do that, then we're going to see what has happened for the last 20 years, this persistent, unacceptable disparity in cardiovascular outcomes described in the Heckler Report over 20 years ago and in the Institute of Medicine Unequal Treatment in 2002. This stuff has been known, and we as a society have not made the hard decision that enough is enough. We're going to make sure that everyone has adequate care, identifiable source of care, appropriate referral to specialists, and the ability to use evidence-based pharmacotherapy and devices regardless of their socioeconomic status, geography, sex, gender, race, or ethnicity. And we haven't made that decision. We have not made that decision. That's incredibly powerful, Dr. Ferdinand. I think what resonates with me is the need to move from the hypothetical of trials and device development or what have you and into the real world where patients have a whole life outside the clinic and their health fits into that and how we can make sure that what we do in pursuit of their health fits in with their life. That's um, really, really powerful. And I, I want to piggyback off that again. And what could be more real life than what we're all living through in terms of the COVID-19 pandemic? And we know you recently wrote in the Journal of the American Heart Association on how the pandemic has worsened disparities, specifically in hypertension as well as other cardiovascular comorbidities. Can you speak a little bit more about that here and about how COVID has worsened disparities? 
Sure, I'm glad you saw that. I'm a cardiologist. I'm an ACC, FACC, FAHA, FASPC, FNLA. I'm a cardiologist. But what I've been doing most recently, and I did a, a Zoom conference today for the university, is address the application of COVID-19 vaccination across all populations, make sure that we don't see this persistent gap across race, ethnicity, social class in terms of the application of vaccination. And early on, I joined the Louisiana Governor's Task Force on COVID-19 Health Equity because Louisiana was one of the first places that was able to demonstrate that specifically African-Americans, because that's the, the largest subpopulation in the New Orleans area and, and most of Louisiana, but also Hispanic, Latinx, American Indian, Alaskan Natives, were having higher infections hospitalizations, and death from COVID-19. So the Louisiana Governor's Task Force had at its goal to try to identify how to reach into those areas for early testing. That's when testing was really important. And then once the vaccines became available, to reach into the neighborhoods to make sure that the vaccination can be equitably distributed. Uh, we haven't been totally successful, by the way, because, like I said, these disparities have been persistent for decades. As it relates to cardiovascular disease, I transitioned much of my clinical care, outpatient care, to telehealth. And I, I was pleased to be able to stay in touch with most of my patients. But there was a difficulty. And here's the difficulty. Just like there's a gap in terms of conventional education, there's an IT gap. There's a gap in the availability of broadband fast-speed internet. There's a gap in the ability to buy home blood pressure devices, which have been validated and could Bluetooth to me, or I could be assured that the numbers I was getting were real. And even the virtual platforms and electronic health records, it sounds real easy. In fact, you hear people flippantly say that 95% of people in the United States own a smartphone. That might be true, but when you pierce what that means, many older persons, including disadvantaged patients, may not even have an extended plan. They may only have a set number of minutes that they use. And they may have never used that smartphone to communicate with anyone. They don't search the World Wide Web. They use it to call their grandkids, and that's about it. So for many of the patients, it was very difficult for them to link to utilize the technology. And I wasn't really sure that the numbers I was getting were even valid. What I think we should do in the future. In the future, I think we should maintain reimbursement for telehealth, but we also need to build in reimbursement for the blood pressure devices. There is a small fee for monitoring the blood pressure electronically. We need to maintain that or even increase that. And fortunately, because most of the blood pressure, almost all of the 125 medications that are available to control blood pressure are generic, we need to make sure that there are very little barriers for patients getting their medicines. I would even say give it to them because the cost to our society of uncontrolled hypertension is so high in terms of heart failure, chronic kidney disease, end-stage renal disease, peripheral arterial disease, strokes, heart attacks, that given a generic antihypertensive medicine and paying for a person to have a valid blood pressure device and then helping them overcome the barriers, the IT barriers to understanding, would probably go a long way towards not only reducing disparities, but saving healthcare costs for hospitalization and disability. But again, as I just mentioned to you, based on the Heckler Report and Institute of Medicine Report from 2002, we've been knowing about these disparities. Everything I just said 
the people who make policy in the United States, I would hope to think they already know that, but we haven't taken a step to make those things real. Why that is, I don't know. Dr. Ferdinand, thank you for that insight. I think it's really important for us to contemplate these multi-level and complex disparities and barriers regarding access to healthcare, like you just discussed. And it's not always a part of our training necessarily. We don't get a formal class or teaching or graded on this. So thank you for making us think about all of this, because even though as residents and fellows and trainees, we are probably exposed to these barriers every day. It's not something that I think all of us think about regularly, but it's probably very important to think about it more often than we actually do. Well, it's a real problem in terms of life loss and disability related to cardiovascular disease. These disparities are harsh, persistent, and unacceptable. And just to make the case even stronger, you can do your own analysis by zip code. You can see the rates of cardiovascular morbidity and mortality by zip code in the United States. Many of the worst outcomes are within a long walk or a bicycle ride of major academic centers in some of the big cities in the United States, including Chicago, New Orleans, Baltimore, Durham, Los Angeles. So just because you have world-class inpatient facilities with high-level technology available doesn't mean that the people who live within walking distance of that institution have better outcomes than others. In fact, the opposite is true. You'd have to do your own research for your own institution to see to what extent it fits the bill. So we're going to head back to our clinic. Our next patient is coronary. He's a 65-year-old male who just had a stent placed to his right coronary artery for progressive angina. He was not on any medication prior to his stent, but now he is on dual antiplatelet therapy, a beta blocker, and a high-intensity statin. His LDL in the hospital was 185. Since all of these medications are new to him, he wants to know if lowering his LDL-C has non-cardiac benefits. Well, the answer is probably going to be yes. If non-cardiac means vascular benefits outside of the coronary tree, we know that intensive risk reduction prevent strokes, progression of peripheral arterial disease, and can help prevent progression of underlying atherosclerosis and heart failure. Remember, when we place the stent, we're looking at the culprit lesion, the lesion that either causes an acute coronary event or has a large amount of myocardium at risk. But that one lesion will not be predictive of that patient's long-term outcomes if we don't control risk, because there are other mild to moderate lesions which can grow, and even before becoming symptomatic, rupture and cause an acute event. And that's probably why some of the failings of interventional large cohorts showing that intensive risk reduction is just as good as approaching the one culprit lesion is not because approaching the one culprit lesion doesn't help in terms of saving myocardium and relieving symptoms. But because if you don't control the risk, the other mild to moderate lesions will continue to grow, will become unstable and rupture. So when you look down the road, two, three, four years, it's going to be hard to show that you were able to improve survival. So I'm not anti-coronary intervention by any means, but I'm also suggesting that that needs to be done in conjunction with intensive risk reduction. The high-intensity statin, we need to make sure he got it. We have to educate him of why he has to take it because many patients 
when they have an intervention, and sometimes the cardiologist is the culprit, the patient will feel that they have been, quote, fixed and probably a somewhat lazy fare about risk factor modification. So yeah, I would intensively lower it. I would do the high-intensity statin. I would suggest adding azetamide may have some benefit anywhere from 10 to 15%. Would not be surprised if he's going to need a PCSK9 inhibitors. The prior authorization has become a little bit less rigorous at this particular point, especially if you have that relationship with a, a pharmacy that knows how to access the medications. He may benefit from a PCSK9 inhibitor. And a dietary intervention along with cardiac rehab, because cardiac rehab will allow someone to touch him, to measure his blood pressure, to make sure he has his blood drawn, to talk to him about his adherence, and to actually visualize him while he participates in aerobic activity. Cardiac rehab has been shown not only in heart failure, but with ischemic heart disease to be of benefit in persons who've had interventions. Beta blocker, okay. Uh, As you know, the beta blocker is mainly beneficial in patients who've had myocardial infarction, at least for several years. Do antiplatelet therapy, okay. Although after six months to a year, I probably would transition him to single antiplatelet therapy, although aspirin is very cheap. It's not as effective and may actually have more bleeding than other agents. But he needs more than someone just to, quote, fix his RCA to, quote, relieve his angina. He needs a modification of his risk. His vasculature is in a perilous situation, and intensive LDL reduction, when you look at the trialists, not only affects coronary events, but peripheral arterial disease, strokes, heart failure, wide range of cardiovascular events. Dr. Ferdinand, thank you so much. And as a trainee, hearing you cover the broad array of therapies and recommendations we should have for this patient, and not just, as you say, fix the lesion. It's extremely powerful and and really a learning opportunity for us all. Just to twist the case a little bit, let's assume we've done some of those things and we've brought our patient's LDL down to 68. This is technically now below the 70 recommended by the AHA-ACC guidelines, but are there benefits to still be derived from trying to get it lower? Yes. If you look at the uh, PCSK9 studies, they've actually done analyses of patients who've gotten LDLs down to lower levels and still saw a benefit in reduction of cardiovascular events, not necessarily mortality. But mortality doesn't tell the whole story for any intervention because mortality is going to be based on the patient's age, other comorbid conditions, and the extent of the disease that you're treating. But if you decrease cardiovascular events and if you observe those patients with an adequate sample size, I would think the PCSK9 inhibitors would show mortality. The Europeans, as you know, in this particular patient would probably suggest that the LDL be less than 55, and if they had had more than one event, less than 50. But I I also look at just the development of humankind. We were all hunter-gatherers. Everyone listening to this is an African because we all came from Africa. And we never consumed these fatted animals that sat in a pen and developed marbled meat that we would eat and call it a steak or a hamburger or bacon. Those are all modern inventions. When you look at free living people, the LDLs average 30, 40. We come out of the womb 20 to 30, 40 milligrams per deciliter. And I think reasonably, while the hard evidence clearly supports less than 70, I would agree with the Europeans to extend it even further. And I use the 
analyses from the PCSK9 data, not again in terms of survival, but in terms of cardiovascular events that lower is better if done safely. So yes, I would drive this patient even further. Dr. Ferdinand, thank you so much for being here with us today. We're near the end of the episode, and I wanted to give a shout out to my co-fellow, Dr. Edward Duran, who is our cardiac prevention fellow at the University of Minnesota, who provided me with a lipid-rich review of studies for this episode. For more lipidology, check out episode 42 with Drs. Anne-Marie Navarre and Nishant Shah, where they discuss lipid metabolism, therapeutic targets, an approach to predicted risk, and common management scenarios. As we close the episode, Dr. Ferdinand, can you tell us what makes your heart flutter about cardiovascular prevention? I am very pleased to see cardiologists in training who clearly want to have the ability to do the advanced imaging, place devices, intervene for acute coronary syndromes, etc., but who are also sensitive to the need to reduce the overall risk that the patient presents with. Perhaps some of the older cardiologists missed that because they became so focused on the culprit lesion or placing a device because of an arrhythmia that we didn't put enough emphasis on prevention. But I'm hearing from the younger cardiologists in training that, yes, they want to they have access to the advanced interventions, devices, and therapeutic agents, but they recognize the importance of treating the whole patient. The other thing that makes my heart really feel fine is that being a child of the lower ninth ward and experiencing how your environment can affect your survival. When you looked at the people on the roof in Katrina, my family was able to get out for Katrina, but I didn't get out for another hurricane when I was a kid called Betsy. My paternal grandfather drowned and we were on the roof for two to three days, no food, no water, nobody to rescue us. So I've actually been one of those people who have seen that environment and survival itself can treat certain proportions of our population very harshly. And my heart flutters. I'm warmed that young cardiologists in training at some of the best institutions are willing to at least entertain the idea that we only need to recognize these disparities, but we need to eliminate them. And for that, I thank you. Dr. Ferdinand, really cannot thank you enough for your time here today and the teaching. I know I've taken so much away from this. And again, I mentioned this before, but really looking forward to going back and listening again and really absorbing all the pearls that you've given us today. Two things that I want to mention specifically. First, your focus on the individual patient resonates deeply and, and is extremely important, as you say, not just to fix the lesion and be focused on these interventions, but to really try to broadly help the individual patient and, and reach a kind of across the board of cardiovascular prevention. So I really can't thank you enough for your time here, Dr. Ferdinand. It's my pleasure. For our audience, this concludes our second episode in our three-part series on LDL cholesterol. Please join us for our third episode with Dr. Allison Bailey. Beep. Beep.